I greet you in the name of Jesus this morning. I'm amazed at the convergence of things. I didn't remember the school bus thing being, I don't know, probably reading a book instead of watching the scenery go by. We have a fellowship of hearts to keep and cultivate, and I thank you for your friendship to me. The few times I've been here at Maranatha, and it's a pleasure to be here this morning. I'll start by talking about snakes. A few years ago, we were in Peru, and uh, Brother John Krupp and Brother Luis Carr and I traveled into San Martin to a jungle town called Juan We. And it wasn't really a jungle anymore. There's a lot of, there's corn, there's rice, there's chocolate growing in the area. But anyway, we lived in this little house, washed our clothes in the stream, and bathed there, and went into the town and back and forth. And one evening we got home, it had been pouring rain, and as we walked into the house, there were frogs outside, uh, just a lot of critters running around. And about 11.30, I came wide awake out of a sound sleep, pandemonium all over. One of my friends had come in, and he shone a flashlight around in the little enclosed ports area. And over by the wall was this five- or six-foot speckled snake. And there was nothing to do but, you know, get rid of that thing. And then the lady of the house, who had come in soon after that, lived in a different portion, uh, thought there was nothing to do but burn it at night yet. So there was an old mattress there. The rain had stopped, and out on the garbage dump, we had the snake-burning ceremony. The thing is, the snake is a jungle guide to superstitious Indian people. What was troubling to me was not so much that, which probably should have been a problem, was the fact that they couldn't decide whether it was a Shushawee snake or a Montagna snake, the difference being that one was poisonous and one was not. It's an interesting experience, to say the least. Then at Wickenburg, for the first time, I saw a rattlesnake in the wild. I always wanted to hear the noise they made. But after I heard it and after I saw the thing, I'm not real keen about seeing them or hearing them again. They're dangerous. So dangerous that after they are killed, if you touch them or move them, they can reflexively bite you and you can be poisoned by them within an hour or so after you think they are dead. Reptiles do that. They have reflex actions. In Numbers 21, we have the story of the Israelites approaching Canaan in the wilderness. The word got around that they were coming. The heart of the king and the culture surrounding them was uh, they melted, the Bible tells us. And the Israelites vowed a vow that if God would deliver them the enemy into their hand, they would uh, be faithful. And, uh, they went on their way, and the way became hard. The soul of this people was discouraged because of the way, and they took it out on Moses and God, Moses being visible, felt the brunt of it, 
But God's heart was hurt by that too. They were short on food. They were short on water. And God sent fiery serpents among them. Fiery serpents. The root word relates to seraphim, the fiery angels. These were not angels, though. These were poisonous snakes, and they bit people, and people were dying right and left. They had sinned. The judgment of God came upon them. And in that judgment, they appealed to God for deliverance. And the Lord said to Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and put it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. I suppose it was fiery because it was shiny brass. I don't know how long it took to make that and how many people died until it was made. The means of deliverance was that these people dying needed to look up to that serpent. Why do people look down? And why would these people have been looking down? Well, if I were walking through a nest of snakes or a contaminated environment, I would sure be looking down. I, I wouldn't want to step on one. I'd want to be avoiding them. And yet, this story is figurative of many things in our lives. We carry fears and burdens, and we walk with our heads down. Uh, sometimes that's because we're afraid of people. That's sometimes because we're embarrassed. Sometimes it's just part of personality. I'm tempted to do that sometimes when I'm in front of a strange crowd. I am able to keep my head up with you as friends this morning, though. One of the peculiar things of this story is why make a brazen image for these people to look to? Especially in light of the commandment that says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. What's going on in this story? Well, we don't want to overanalyze it. I will say this, that when God tells us to do something for our salvation, our faith, when it obeys, will satisfy God's desire for us. Faith in obeying, no more, no less. Now there's a little rule for biblical interpretation that is very fascinating to me. It's not original with me. It goes something like this, that when the Bible says two different things, believe them both. And so we have those paradoxes that appear. And so I can't tell you exactly why God would say, don't make, a brazen, don't make a graven image, and then make one. I do know that the end of the story is that they kept the thing around, and in the time of Hezekiah, the Israelites were worshipping it, and because he was a godly man and a good king, he destroyed the brazen serpent. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that part of the key to that puzzle is in something we call jurisprudence. Jurisprudence is the science or the study or the discipline of law. 
juris is a root word from the Latin. We have it in the word jurisdiction. We have it in the word jury. A balanced system of law requires, among other things, two things. That satisfaction in the law for a crime must be in kind and to the same extent. And if we take this story back to the Garden of Eden, the serpent deserves to be hanged. Because he is the root of the problem. And I'll leave it at that for this moment. Now concerning our salvation, we are justified by Christ. Justification is an act by a lawgiver that pardons a sinner unconditionally. When President Clinton went out of office, he signed a whole bunch of pardons. Five or six hundred or more people that stole filing cabinets and I don't know what all else. And there's Scott Free because he, he signed the pardon. A pardon cannot be bought. Neither can you in actuality buy a gift. To make my point, if you were to go to the governor of Minnesota and try to buy a pardon, you would damage the law, you would damage the lawgiver, and you would wind up in jail probably for perverting the law, and he would too for selling judgment. But you can ask for it. You can ask for mercy. And so governors and presidents and kings can sign pardons. So justification is, is grace. Mercy only earned in the sense that when you need it, you say please. It's nice if we think of our salvation in terms of the great gift it is. And if I can reduce it to something very simple, have we said please and have we said thank you for the gift that God provides for us? In Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, we have the uh, doctrine of salvation in four parts. I want to read the verses. I want to summarize it first. There are four factors that make the total package in how we are saved, if that's the right way to describe it. We are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ, unto good works. So our salvation is objective in Christ, not subjective about our feelings. I will read the verses. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. It's a proof text that I go back to. That's not normally the verse that we go to in the New Testament to think about God's great plan of salvation. Another verse I want to mention, focusing on the objective 
person and work of Christ is 1 Corinthians 1.30. Talking about God's plan and how he chose simple, base, ordinary things, common things, to confound the secular wisdom of the world. And he's done that so no flesh can glory in itself. We do not work out our own salvation uh, by coming up with a plan, a little bit like Peter was willing to do. I, I admire Peter for his, uh, you know, his uh, let's get on the stick and do something about it. God used that gift modified to be a tremendous apostle in the church. What are we since we cannot glory in anything of our own? We can't because we're corrupted and we can't because we are what God gave us. It's a little bit like a child buying a gift for his father's birthday. He goes to his dad and, said, and says, I need some money to buy your birthday gift. Uh, that's how silly it would be for us to try to earn our salvation or to buy it. Of God, verse 30, are ye in Christ, Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus Christ has made to me all I need, wisdom, righteousness, and power. He is all I need. Please turn to John 3 for the rest of the discussion this morning. I will, if I have time, use a few other verses to summarize and conclude the uh, discussion. We look in this chapter to the doctrine of regeneration, described as the new birth. In fact, the term comes from this chapter. I want the setting from chapter 2, verse 23. Jesus was in Jerusalem. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men, and he needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So he's probably at Jerusalem for the what comes in chapter 3. I can't say exactly for sure, but it's most probable that's where he was. And his miracles have been observed. People are caught up in that. They're interested in what happens, what he's been doing. To think about the miracles, I remember that Paul tells us that the miracles that are done are signs to unbelievers. And um, they did catch the attention of many people for many reasons. The Zealites, the Sadducees, the Pharisees all wanted deliverance from Rome. And here was a man lo and behold, that might be able to do it. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. There were two political parties, major political parties, major political religious parties in Judea. The Sadducees, a powerful group, believed strictly in the written law, no more, no less. It's written in stone, that's it. They did not believe in a resurrection. They cooperated uh, almost fully with the Roman government and the uh, Judean people, 
the Jews, had a privilege that no other Roman province had. They had a quasi-system of self-government where the Romans respected them with the internal things involving their religion, their culture, and that sort of thing. They had to pay their taxes. Uh, they didn't want any riots in Jerusalem or in Palestine. And uh, essentially, they were compromising with the Romans. Now, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. The Pharisees are very interesting people. Uh, they believed in the supremacy of the oral law. They believed that what was spoken was more important than what was written. It comes very close home in our time when we hear people say, I will follow what Jesus said instead of what the Bible says. I've heard that argument and I can't make any sense out of it. The Spirit will guide me. Uh, all that sort of thing. Another very nice thing that these people believed was that there was a genuine and real resurrection. They were a special people among the Jews because of their sincerity, their dedication to holiness and separation and spirituality. There are probably about 6,000 of them scattered throughout the culture. I picked it up somewhere. I can't prove the number either way. One of the things they were commissioned to do was to Look for the Messiah. They were going to be ready when he came. There's a ruling body of Jews called the Sanhedrin that was in majority Sadducees, but there was a minority number of Pharisees in that synod. The Greek word's the same for synod and Sanhedrin. And because the Pharisees were so widely respected, the minority actually could control what was happening in the Sanhedrin. It was a count of 60 elders based upon those men that met God on Sinai where they communed with him around the table of sapphire stone. You remember that story in Exodus? There was one more person on the board in the Synod in the Sanhedrin, the high priest, which made a count of 71 so that in voting uh, there would never be a deadlock. Another peculiar thing uh, pertinent to the uh, trial of Christ is that there had to be a certain kind of majority to execute someone, and the Jews could not carry that out. It had to be sanctioned by the Roman government because it was capital punishment. A voter in the capital trial on the Sanhedrin could vote for execution or freedom. He could change his vote, but he could not change it from freedom to execution. It was a built-in thing to keep somebody from agreeing with the crowd when his first motion was to say, let the prisoner go free or keep him in jail. So, if a person voted for execution, he could change his vote to vote, vote for freedom as the voting went on. That's a little bit beside the subject. What follows in this text is a very serious and enlightening conversation that intrigues us and benefits all of us. Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, the same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. 
Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Very interesting shift in conversation right at the beginning. Jesus, knowing the hearts of all men from the previous verses, the setting, immediately cuts to the chase. He sees a man who has a good question. And I think Nicodemus, in his blindness, was sincere. I really do. Nicodemus presents to us the mystery of a man walking in darkness who cannot know the light until the light comes to him. He came at night seeking from within his own private darkness to know who Jesus was. I would like to think that he came at the end of the day when he had time to talk, when he was comfortable talking. I don't think he was a coward. He may have been wary of uh, starting some chaotic revolution. I don't know. The Zeolites were capable of doing that from the bronze bow. The Zeolites were like the fifth rail, the rebels, always mixing things up. And they were crucified by the hundreds, sometimes thousands, before Jesus was crucified. Anyway, Nicodemus came at night seeking. And I am glad that he had the courage to seek and to ask because in doing that, he was on the way to finding. And he's always identified, which is only two other places in the scripture, by his coming and when he came. So in John 7, 50, uh, he defended Jesus in the light, in the daylight, among his contemporaries. Let's look at that, 7, 50. The government was out to catch Jesus, arrest him, and they didn't do it. The officers returned and made this excuse that he never did a person speak like this. And uh, the Pharisees attacked them and said, Are you deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. And then Nicodemus, a Pharisee, speaks up. And I'm supposing the Sadducees are great at this because uh, there's always this antagonism between the two groups. And in the parentheses, he that came to Jesus by night being one of them. And he raises this question. Doth our law judge any man before it hear him? And nobody do it? And they answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. Base things of the world are designed by God or used by God to confound the wise. End of the discussion, and they each went their own way. Nicodemus is also remembered in the scripture for sharing with Joseph of Arimathea the work of preparing Jesus' body for burial. There's an upscale Orthodox Jewish community at Bethesda, Maryland. It's along the Potomac River as you approach Great Falls. 
very nice community. And one of the things that the Orthodox Jews practice is preparing the bodies of their own people for burial. The wealthiest, the richest want to do that. Lawyers, doctors, professors, professional people counted a high honor to wash the body of a brother in their community. I say brother, I think they think of it that way. Because it's the one favor that can't be returned. A dead person's not going to wash your body when you die. It's interesting to me. It's interesting to me that uh, what goes on in these people's minds. When I think of Nicodemus and Joseph preparing Christ's body for burial, and does he remember the words that I'm going to read a little farther on? Remember that Jesus knows the hearts of men, and without explaining it, John goes directly to Jesus' question because Jesus understands Nicodemus. Jesus said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born if he is old? Can he enter in the second time to his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Capital S, Spirit of God, small s, Spirit of Man. I don't know if that's significant. There's not always uh, uniformity and capitalization or punctuation in the Bible. Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but cannot tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Now we surely know when the wind's blowing out of the northeast or the southwest, but we don't know when it's going to change. The wind is a free agent. I mean, we, we can't see it. We feel it. We hear it. We feel the effects of it, see the effects of it. And the Spirit of God is mysterious to the mind of man. Not so mysterious to us who are Christian, perhaps, but definitely incomprehensible to a faithless one or an unbeliever. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? And again, notice Jesus' very sincere and pointed and forthright statement. It would be an embarrassing question to be asked this, but a good question. We all need to face it. Art thou a master in Israel and knoweth not these things? We don't always have to have answers. Sometimes it's very nice to say, I don't know. And sometimes greater credibility is earned in the relationship that we have with each other if we are willing to say, I don't know. I'm sure there's an answer. God knows. Somebody else may know. Out of the community of believers, we may know. There's nothing wrong with saying, I don't know. But Jesus' question is to focus him on what he was saying he believed. He's actually saying, you're looking for the Messiah, are you prepared to find him? You're upholding an ethic of holiness, are you living up to it? See, the Pharisees have a reputation for being hypocrites. And he raises this question. 
No, I'll get to the question later. Verse 11. Verily, verily, or truly I say unto thee, we speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. That almost sounds like a gloss put in by the Apostle John to explain it, but it's Jesus' words. If I told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And he's answering the question with a question. He's saying, are you the Messiah? And Jesus is saying, you wouldn't understand it if I told you unless you've got a spiritual mind to accept it. So it, it's a closed circle. And yet God doesn't deliberately put people inside closed circles. He's leaving an opening. He's waiting for the insight to come. No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And I wonder when Nicodemus is washing that body, whether he remembered those words. Does he understand at that moment what it meant for Jesus to be lifted up? Now, let's go back and look at the conversation again. I want to pick out some pronouns. When Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he, in verse 3, addresses him in first and third person singulars. Now, I'm into a little English grammar here. He's speaking directly to Nicodemus, and he says, I say unto thee, and then he goes to the third person, except a man, a woman, a person, and he goes on with the dialogue. So it's personal to Nicodemus, one-on-one, -on -one. but when we get down to verse 7, the pronoun is ye instead of thee. And that ye, if I understand the KJV English correctly, is anyone, you. See, in modern English we have you singular and you plural. Context tells me, tells you, whether I'm talking, there I did it, you, all of us, or if I'm looking at you, it's one to one. But in the KJV, the ye indicates everyone that needs to be saved. You all must be born again. Now I won't push that point really far because I'm not really expert on the language. I wish I were. It's a very rich language and we have in the old forms thee and thou, you and ye, some things that stand out that we don't always see in modern English as we look at the two yous for instance. What is the new birth? How many of you have been born? Would you raise your hand if you've been born again? Raise them high like you're really happy about. You said please and thank you. Very good. Okay. What is birth? I don't remember being born. The Bible talks about the travail of birth. It's always speaking from the mother's point of view. I can understand that. I've never been a mother. But I think it's travail for the child too. I suppose it's 
really difficult to go from a warm, safe world to a cold, hard world. Birthing is something that happens in time. It's a process. It's not just done. Some births are long and tedious, and some are short and quick. In our natural birth, we don't remember being born. And furthermore, we're born without our choice. We're not even involved with it except to just start breathing. Okay? And if we don't, somebody cleans the phlegm from our lungs and smacks us on the bottom, and, and that first wail of an infant is joy to who hears it. And if that doesn't happen, People are uptight. Would you turn to Ezekiel 16? Someone asked me if I was going to bring in something from the Anabaptist theology course. And I will. Couldn't resist it. But it happened not because of the question. I mean, Isaiah, I'm going to get a different marker here. In Ezekiel, we have this story of a fallen nation, which is typical of fallen people. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. And I'm going to Christianize it. Human people, God's people, know your abominations, know your sins. And say, Thus saith the Lord God unto you, Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan, Thy father was an Amorite, thy mother a Hittite. These people have wandered away from God. And as for thy nativity, in the day that thou wast born, thy navel was not cut, neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. None I pity thee to do any of these things unto thee. See, a newborn baby is helpless. No one looked to have compassion upon thee. But thou wast cast out into the open field to the loathing of thy person in the day that thou wast born. And when I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in thine own blood, I said unto thee when thou wast in thy blood, Live! Yea, I said unto thee when thou wast in thy blood, Live! We get these horrible news reports of infants found in garbage dumps and rubbish barrels and public restrooms and we cringe and it's a picture of what we are as victims of Satan along with the notion of birth we have uh, the new birth we have the doctrine of regeneration um, if I were to have my arm amputated I cannot grow a new arm um, planaria worms can grow two heads Starfish, with its uh, one tentacle cut off, can grow another arm. And it, so regeneration is vaguely known to us in some simple biological metaphors. And there is, in modern science, this tantalizing hope that somehow out of stem cell research we can grow a new pancreas for somebody where it's a solution to diabetes. And probably there's going to be success in limited 
ways where that's true. But that's a type of what total regeneration is. Our spiritual birth is ours. At our choice. That we are not empowered to be born unless it's God's will. And it is his will. And in that birth, that by our choice, there is a cross. The accompanying regeneration that we will go through and have gone through involves the whole person, a total integration, body, soul, and spirit. And that's commanded positively in the law and reiterated in the New Testament. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love thy neighbor as thyself. How do we understand these things? How do we understand anything? How do we especially understand spiritual things? When we look at the doctrine of the Trinity, or the doctrine of the Incarnation, and we think about our salvation, we can't reason it out. And I'm amazed at a very simple line in the Dortrecht Confession, in the discussion of the Incarnation. I left my paper at home, but I remember part of it. After it describes the Trinity, it says we accept it by faith. We have this lovely line in the paragraphs about the Incarnation where it describes Christ's birth. And the writer, subscribed to with all the other people that signed it, says, we content ourselves with what the scripture says. Isn't that lovely? Just to be content with what it says. So we're looking at great mysteries here. Wonderful mysteries. And the fact that it's a mystery causes me to exalt in the love of God this morning in the passing of uh, Brother Preston and the other uh, passing of a friend of... Um, Edgar Fries, they're traveling home today. He's asked to preach the funeral sermon left yesterday at noon. So we can share the time at funerals rejoicing and bearing the grief of the ones who are left behind. There will be deep questions. Now we have the proof text from the New Testament. It's probably the most known verse in the Bible. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. It's astounding to me that Jesus uses the story of the serpent in the wilderness to explain to Nicodemus what his own death is going to entail. And Nicodemus, of course, doesn't get it. The apostles don't get it. I mean, the disciples, before they are apostles, if you can make that difference, they're especially apostles when the Spirit comes upon them. They're apostles in training. We had a story of that in our Sunday school lesson this morning. I come back to it. Why did Jesus need to die? Well, the payment had to be in kind and to the same extent. So man's life for man's life. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's the hard thing about law. You can't escape it. And it's a priceless gift. 
Jesus wasn't forced to do that. The prophet says that God stood in amazement that no one was there to solve this problem. Let my imagination go and I can think of God. Who will go and pay this penalty? It came to Isaiah that way in terms of who will prophesy. He said, here am I, Lord. And uh, so God commissioned him and he purified his tongue with a hot coal. It was so hot that an angel had to carry it in a tongs. I don't know how you get your tongue purified with something that's going to burn an angel's fingers, but it's a tremendous visual picture, and it's intended to be a metaphor. So Jesus volunteers that part of God himself to pay the penalty, which we cannot buy. Don't ever try to buy it. You will offend God if you try that, and you'll damage your own salvation, just as you cannot buy off the governor of Minnesota. I hope you can't. I don't know him, so I can say that. Okay. I praise God for this intense and uninhibited discussion that Nicodemus and Jesus had because our own fears and doubts and questions and limitations come to the surface in this discussion. And I am thankful that this Pharisee was courageous enough that he had the courage to seek and to look, I hope that he found. Now I can imagine John sitting in the shadows, the Apostle John, listening and learning and thinking and remembering because we have the story. Verse 18, the only begotten Son, he that believeth on him, the, unbe the only begotten Son, any person that believeth on Jesus is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds be reproved. But he that doeth truth, cometh to the light, that his deeds may, may, may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Perhaps as difficult as the cold fire on Isaiah's tongue. I think there was light in our friend's life. Matthew 6.23 talks about people who know and have all the answers. Light, if you please. The text there says, If thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light, the wisdom that you have, if you're analyzing it philosophically, try and explain things that are too much for us to understand. If the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? It goes on to say we can't serve two masters. God's grace is not limited to us in the doctrine of salvation and the new birth that we rejoice in. The only thing that limits his grace is um, the stubbornness of a will that does not cave into his grace. The only thing that would keep Nicodemus from his salvation after this discussion is if he continued cynically blocking it out. 
I don't think he did that, but I don't know the rest of the story. John 3, 33 to 36 connects with this. In the interval here, John is um, not yet in prison, and a question came from that quarter about how to be right and purified, still meeting the legal, lawful requirements. And Jesus himself met all the legal requirements under the old dispensation. The new dispensation starts at the cross and the resurrection. Let me read them. I want to read it as though there's no break, you know, from 21 on. He that hath received his testimony, Jesus' words, and believed them, hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. God doesn't have 60 kilo kilo of grace to disperse in this audience this morning where he counts heads and divides it up and he gives proportionally to gifts. It's unlimited. Uh, you have all the love in the world for the first child that's born in your family. When the second's born, you don't give them 50% each of your love. You give each of them 100% of your love. Jesus would have needed to die if I were the only person standing on this earth today, and that's true of all of us. The new birth is a mystery of grace. Who has heard of such a thing? Let's go to Isaiah 66. We're back to the birth analogy again. This is the last chapter of the book of Isaiah where summing up of things is done. And uh, God is judging people who do not believe. Um, he's going to choose delusions for people who won't believe the truth. But he will look to the person who is poor and of a contrite spirit, the person who trembleth at his word, verse 2. But he's talking about the birthing of uh, his people in the restoration, which is coming home from Babylon. He's talking about the coming of Christ and the birth of the church. He's ultimately talking about the consummation of all things and the question in light of a birth without travail. Notice that before her birth before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Verse 7. And then the question, who has heard of such a thing? And I drew a little line across the column back to chapter 65, verse 24. And we get what he's striving at. I submit it to you for your consideration. I think it's true. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer... And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. This meeting with Nicodemus was foreordained. What Nicodemus is going to do with it is not foreordained. That's his choice. Before the foundation of the world, the whole scheme was known to God because in eternity, there is no time. Past, present, future is instantaneous all the time. And I can't even talk about it with introducing time words. A tremendously important thing. 
God is always ahead of the curve to meet our needs. I'm not going to catch him sleeping when we need help. If we're sleeping, we may miss the outgoing ship or the flight. We have a responsibility to do our part. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that worketh in you both to will and do of his good pleasure. Now back to Isaiah 66, 12 and 15. I just choose those verses. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her, his people, his chosen people, Jews and now Gentiles, anyone that believes. I will extend peace to her like a river. We have a song, Peace Like a River. That's where it comes from here. And the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream flowing into Jerusalem, not out of it. We have both images in the scripture. But then in verse 15, Behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Ultimate judgment. Catastrophic events all throughout history which recall people to the Lord. We have a choice. We're going to go through the fire one way or the other. But you have the choice to choose the iron furnace of Egypt, which is bondage, misery, and destruction, even though you get onions to eat, okay? Or you get to choose the purifying work of the spirit that Peter talks about. You know, we, we've got to submit one way or the other. That's, you know, we're born into it. We can't escape that. But I am grateful in verse 17 of chapter 60. It seems like you can knit these chapters together back and forth. Here's the hope of the prophet. Here's the promise of God. Behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. And the farmer shall not be remembered nor come into mind. You don't remember what was before your first native birth. You remember what it's like to be in sin. Thank God that the memory softens a bit and we tend to remember better things than worse things. And I have wondered when we cross that last, what we call death, it's actually a birth. Did you ever think about that? From one existence to the next. On this side of it, as unwilling as that squalling child is to be born into the world, we, we don't want to die. But on the other side, I don't think you're going to remember it, what this world was. Except you'll remember the love of Jesus. I don't want to add to or reduce the text. So in Isaiah 65, 17, we have this promise of all things new. And I say to you this morning... It's because we are justified by the blood of Christ. We are justified because God is love. There's more to it. One more thing, which is a whole different subject. Turn to 1 Peter 1. Our Protestant friends are happy to be justified. We take all kinds of liberties with it. But it's a sanctification that goes on. All things new, made new, is our justification by the blood of Christ. All things continuing new, because Jesus is our sanctification, is being holy, 1 Peter 1, 16, because God is holy. 
We're justified because God is love. We're sanctified because he's holy. I went to this reference because Peter talks to us about God's plan and our salvation and how Jesus was raised from the dead and how our hope is in that. And then there's a promise. We've been purified and obeying the truth. You can't separate faith and obedience. Don't even try it. They're almost synonymous in my mind. And we love one another with a pure heart, fervently. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of God endureth forever. The choice is yours. The choice is mine. The choice is ours together. What we will do with the pardon that's ours, that we say please for and thank you. Shall we kneel for prayer? Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of Jesus to thank you for your great love to us. We confess that we are sinners. And we confess day by day we need you to keep us sanctified. Help us to walk in your word. Help us to honor the Lord Jesus. Help us to respect the voice of your Holy Spirit in our conscience. And we praise you, Lord, that these three witnesses agree without any misunderstanding. Our hearts go out this morning to those who are lost, those believers who are lonely and may be experiencing doubts. And we pray for brothers and sisters and children grieving the death of loved ones. Thank you for the story of Nicodemus. Thank you for the love of Jesus to speak clearly to him. Thank you for the covenant of faith that comes to us through Abraham and the covenant of law which disciplines us in preparation for the covenant of grace which we can have with you. Thank you for your grace. Give us faith in Christ and give us the power to live sanctified lives and to good works. Bless every person in this congregation today to your honor, to your exaltation. And Lord, where we need to send us through the fire, purify us, prepare us, salt us, prepare us for real life in the days ahead and real life beyond. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.